Perform this on demand. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The country has been pushed to the limit. Our political bonds have been torn apart. We need a true leader who can save us from certain doom. (laughs) Unfortunately, we could only find this guy. Hey, it's Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck is coming live to talk about the right path forward and to make fun of the people standing in the way. He might not be able to save the country, but at least we can all go down laughing. Glenn Beck Live, the Addicted to Outrage Tour, on tour this fall. For tickets, VIP packages, and more, visit glennbeck.com. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This, the podcast where you'll find that patriotic American Muslim who feels it is our responsibility as Muslims to lead the reform against the root cause of radical Islam. You'll find that voice, that voice of reason, that refuses to bow to political correctness, that will take on the enemies of freedom and liberty, that will take on the Islamists, call them what they are, and talk about solutions on how to defeat them and marginalize their influence, marginalize their ideas that dominate and oppress our community. And uh, many of you out there are sick and tired of uh, the partisanship in the media, the Uh, obsessive media that thinks outside Washington there's nothing that happens and here I think you can get that dose of reality of what we're facing and no week no week more epitomizes a dose of reality than the 17th anniversary of 9-11 that we commemorated this week 17 years ago this week again on that same day Tuesday 8.46 in the morning plane struck the Twin Towers. Our lives were changed. 3,000 people perished. Thousands more were injured, suffered trauma, physical, mental. Tens of thousands more affected, if not millions of us, saw our lives transformed in what we faced before us. The 21st century truly became a century punctuated and began on what President Bush called the War on Terror. That war was inaptly named because terrorism is a symptom. Terrorism is a tip of the iceberg of an underlying problem. And as we've seen, Al-Qaeda was decimated, almost completely decimated in 2007, only now to be resurgent and coming back. Why? Because the brand of jihad switched to ISIS after the Arab Awakening, and that brand now is on the verge of decimation again. But the jihadi wakamal program will continue as long as the underbelly continues to feed through the conveyor belt towards militant Islamism, from nonviolent Islamism to violence and to all the other offshoots of the endgame, which they share, no matter how heinous the method that some feel, the endpoint, which is Islamic states, Sharia state, the Quran as the constitution, the caliphate as a conglomeration of Islamic states, that's the same endgame. Whether you're the militant Hamas, as, as Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Muslim Brotherhood, or you're the nonviolent imams in the mosques and elsewhere, or you're the militant tyrants of Erdogan in Turkey, of the Qatar family, the Khomeinis in Iran, others the bottom line is is that islamism will continue to feed jihadism their hand and glove and jihadis will create groups that we will continue to fight on the battlefield and on this commemoration of 9-11 we have to ask ourselves do we want to continue to fight this battle generation after generation after generation What does never forget mean? And as I said earlier this week in some interviews, and I'll tell you, never forget is truly never forgetting if we actually do something about it. It's not just remembering. It's not just documenting it. It's not just making sure our children learn about it. 
understand what the real threat was and we no longer try to do the moral equivalency dance with radical groups and or a shooter in Las Vegas or others that uh, also are psychiatrically uh, uh, ill and have certain symptoms of threats to our society, our peace. But you can't compare that to the threat of large political movements in a quarter of the world's population in which the faith of Islam is the constituency for a 30-40% political movement of Islamism that has militant offshoots. You just can't compare the two and its threat to the future and its threat to the entire century. And I think that's what never forget means. And yet, what have we done? I think we have forgotten it is. 9-10-01 in America. It's not 9-12-01. We find new presidents swayed by MBS's, Mohammed bin Salman's 2030 plan, as if that's some type of reform. Some good things have happened. Uh, the, the, the lip service of separation from the Muslim Brotherhood with the Saudis. Uh, the beginning to talk about women driving and having rights. But yet... They've imprisoned more women in the last six months than many years before. They have continued torturing. They have continued to empower clerics. There's a report out by the French today that talked about the 16 most popular idea accounts on Twitter. And they say idea accounts. They're talking politicians and ideas versus rock and roll and, and uh, celebrities. There's overlap there. But four out of the 16 are Saudi clerics. So the Saudis talk about reform, and yet those four Saudi clerics are Wahhabi hardliners. They're not reformers. They're not modernists. They're not pro-Western in their ideas. Do you feel safer? Do you feel safer since 9-11? I don't. Yes, I'm working in this knee-deep up to my neck, if you will. But being safer is about the root cause. Just because there's cops at the parking lots trying to prevent drunk driving, I might feel safer, but if I know that the rate of alcoholism is higher than it's ever been, I'm not going to feel safer on the streets. More are going to get through. The rate of jihadism, the rate of ideological spread of Islamists, and the counterweight from Western parties, Western ideas, freedom thinkers, universal human rights thinkers, is less than it's ever been. Assad is winning in Syria. The tyrants of, of Saudi Arabia, of Egypt, of various countries are winning. I think the silver lining right now is Tunisia. We've talked about that on this program with Tunisia, the Islamists losing an election, peacefully losing an election, and now having a coalition of secularists running the government the silver lining is in iran where you have muslims to the tens of and hundreds of thousands if not millions pushing back against the khomeinists and more than it was in the green revolution of 2009 this is a revolution against theocracy against islamist tyranny and yet here in the west it's the opposite we can't even talk about Islamism without trying to do a moral equivalency dance, without saying that we're going to offend Muslims. You see Muslims running for candidacy in offices across the country from California to Michigan to Florida and, and, and Arizona. And yet nobody asks them anything about Islamism, about what their role would be in national security because, oh, just because they're Muslim, you can't ask them. Well, sure you can. They would know better than anyone about Muslims that believe in an Islamic party and they would be better suited to lead reform, but they're not. Most of these candidates are Democrats who uh, are running on an identity politic and hoping that Americans that feel guilty for whatever they've done will vote for them. That's not the America I know. And one of the segments coming up, I'm going to talk to you about immigration and identity. And we, we, we throw that around. We talk about rules and laws and walls and other things. But what is truly the process of integration, of immigration, and acculturation? We'll talk about that. But on 9-11 anniversary this week, I hope you sat with your family and prayed 
for the lives that were lost and for the lives that we will prevent from being lost in the next century. This is not a war we're going to continue to be able to win by the whack-a-mole that our brave heroes in homeland security across departments of government continue to prevent, and some get through, but most they are preventing. That's unsustainable. What is sustainable is to begin to advance Western ideas. We need to go on offense. We need to advance free speech, advance religious freedom, advance universal human rights, advance secular governance, work with parties on the ground that share our values, and the Islamists will wither on the vine. To know that in the countries like Iran and Tunisia, the Islamists are losing even without us having an offense. Yes, we have a defense. We're, we're putting sanctions back on Iran. We are working against the radical Islamists, but that's just defense. The offense would be pushing forth proudly the ideas of Western freedom, al-Hurrah, and other Western media arms that are about changing hearts and minds, whatever that meant. And uh, when uh, Karen Hughes started to talk about that, has to be about promoting values. It can't just be about being on defense. It has to be about promoting values. And unfortunately, we've not been doing that. And, and Al-Hurra has improved since President Trump took office. Uh, we have found that uh, the Islamist influence has decreased significantly. Their programming has improved quite a bit. But they are profoundly underpowered. So hopefully we can take the offense. That, to me, is what Never Forget is all about. Thank God for this country. God bless the United States of America. And on this 17th anniversary of 9-11, may we work strong together as a country to save our republic, to save our values, and defeat the root cause of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other jihadis, which is political Islam. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. We'll be right back. <laughs> You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jesser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. So a tax plan that he signed, working on trade deals, whether you agree with them or not, messing with the tariffs, and inspiring people one way or the other has nothing to do with the good economy. Nothing. After two years, zero effect on it. But he controls the weather. The Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. You and I together look for those front lines, look for those stories, those ideas in which I can express to you the touch points, the touch points where reform, where, where Muslims can have some fire put under their feet so that we can act and begin to change the consciousness, the importance with which we look at things that sometimes may appear trivial, but are actually more important. And those things can begin to reshape our identity to being American, Americans who happen to be Muslim, not Muslims who demand to be American. And unfortunately, most of these, whether it's candidates running for office that happen to be Muslim, or Muslims that are uh, screaming the grievance of the day, at the end of the day, to them, it's all about their Muslim identity, their separatism, their Islamism. It's not about understanding what America is and respecting it. There's a story from just a few days ago that was lost, again, in the shuffle of American news cycle that's about 30 minutes now, from Denver, from a federal facility. And... They didn't even name him at the beginning of the story. It said a Muslim man serving a life sentence for his role in the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. His name, by the way, is Ahmed Dajaj. They said the name at the end of the story. 
He wants a judge to determine that the federal prison officials violated his religious rights by failing to provide meals, strictly conforming to his beliefs and access to be even to an imam of the same denomination. Not just a Muslim imam, um, an imam of the same denomination. The two-day civil case wrapped up in Tuesday in a Denver federal courtroom. Judge Brooke Jackson did not immediately rule and is expected to issue a decision in writing. A judge was being held at a supermax prison in Colorado when the lawsuit began in 2015 and just wrapped up August 29, 2018. A judge represented by University of Denver law students watched the trial via video because of security concerns. So what are the law students doing now? Maybe they're playing devil's advocate. Literally, literally devil's advocate. And want to just sort of see what the system would do. I don't think that's it. I hate to tell you, I think the students nowadays have sympathy for the radicals that somehow they were shaped by Western foreign policy. But that's a guess. We'll leave that on the table. A judge was sentenced in 99 to more than 114 years in prison for his role in the blast in an underground garage on February 26, 1993 that killed six people, one of them pregnant, injured more than 1,000 and forced an estimate 50,000 to flee the Trade Center's Twin Towers in a scene of smoke, fear, and confusion that would be magnified on September 11, 2001. He was moved to a federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana earlier this year. The lawsuit accused the officials of the prison, particularly staff at the administrative maximum ADX facility in Florence, of failing to provide food, meeting a judge's belief that all animals used for food must be fed, raised, and slaughtered according to Islamic law. The lawsuit said a judge considered vegetarian and kosher meals inadequate. The lawsuit also said a judge went months without being visited by an imam, a term for an Islamic religious leader. Since moving to the Indiana facility, he began participating in a faith-based program that includes regular classes with an imam. Oh, regular class with an imam in Indiana. Well, it's more available because the Islamic side of North America is parked in, in, in Plain, Plainsville, Indiana. The Islamist, Isna, if you will. But the imam who works with Muslim inmates in the program belongs to another denomination in the faith. His attorneys, the law students, argued that even listening to someone speak about views contrary to his own violate the inmates' religious rights. And they claimed he had rights under the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, approved by Congress in 93, was intended to limit the federal government's ability to infringe on someone's sincere religious beliefs. The federal government argued that they didn't limit his ability to practice his faith and did not violate the law. So his attorneys asked Jackson to order prison officials to continue providing the meals he started to get recently that were in accordance with his diet. So they basically changed the rules and admitted guilt. Jackson gave no firm sense of his leanings, but he was clearly frustrated by the quick fix that came days before the trial opened. The quick fix. Something they couldn't do or wouldn't do for three years was done in 48 hours, Jackson said to an attorney for the government. What confidence does that give the court that they won't change it in the future? Jackson suggested that he would give a judge preferential treatment over other inmates who must attend classes with leaders of their own faith to stay in the program. He seemed less swayed, however, by a judge's attorney's request for a court order letting him participate in the Indiana prison's faith-based program without attending the current imam's classes. So the point here is that where do you fall on this? I've talked to you, I think, three, four years ago, uh, maybe not on one of these programs, but I've talked publicly about this whole thing about, you know, what are the limits? What is it, whatever, what, what one person's religious freedom is could be another person's huge, onerous obligations. Can they request specific oils? Can they request certain rugs and other things five times a day? Now, the Muslims in a prison facility in Indiana in which the Islamist groups 
requested that their needs be met, asked to pray in group five times a day. Now, moderate Muslims would tell you, well, how do you describe moderate? I'd say the non-fanatical Muslims would tell you that that's not necessary to pray in group. So how extreme, how literalist of an interpretation of Islam do we take as the religious requirements that need to be fulfilled by the government? That case, thankfully, was not meted out. They lost because the warden said it would just be too much cost, expense, and lack of security, reduction in security at the federal prison to have group prayer for the 20, 30 Muslims that were in that prison. That makes no sense. So what this prisoner was requesting, this terrorist who got 117 years in prison was requesting things that are should just not be part of his benefits he wants to pray he wants a copy of the quran he wants to meet with an imam once a week or whatever fine that makes sense all people should be able to have that things that make sense but a particular faith should not get particular special treatment no pork fine Fasting on Ramadan, fine, let him eat his meal after sunset. Make accommodations for that. But specifically prepared food in a halal way, that is absurd. That is truly absurd. And it looks like the judge is going to rule in his favor. And the law students are going to be high-fiving themselves that they helped. And they're going to say, well, it doesn't matter about the moral decadence of the of the client it's the fact that the government should be blind justice should be blind to the reality of the rights that are given this individual otherwise there's a slippery slope that will judge the values given inside prison based on the labeling of that criminal listen my value judgments are based on the fact that he's muslim and he's an islamist so Muslims deserve religious freedom just like anybody else. Islamists and Salafists do not. That is a political movement that does not need to be appeased and met inside prison. So, there are certain things that all Muslims agree on that are part of our faith that should be accepted as the predominant understanding of what is and what is not Islam. And I think that is the crux of what is accommodation. There's a case I talk about in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, in which the Department of Justice did education that a teacher in Chicago school district should have been allowed the three weeks to go do Hajj. And it was the left, the unionists, that told her, no, you can't do that. You've only been in the teaching here for a year and a half. You want to go off in December for three weeks. That's finals week. We can't find somebody to cover for you. No, your leave is denied, and you don't have three weeks anyway. A year you have two. She cried foul that it was a religious freedom problem. And sure enough, DOJ comes in under the Obama administration and not only rules in her favor, gives her a reward of $100,000, dollars something like that, and then insist that they have, yep, you guessed it, diversity training. That's nonsense. We don't have to do hajj. If you want to get into the theology of it, we don't have to do hajj but once in a lifetime, and usually most Muslims do it later in their life, at the ages of 40, 50, 60. When you can afford it, when you pay your own way, when your debts have all been met, etc., Any Muslims listening will know some of the rules apply to when you can do hajj. But this 26-year-old teacher decided to wrap her religious freedom around her, her job and her bosses and the union. And the Obama administration used that as an example, again, to make Muslims into the petard, as they say. You know, all of these cases, I think, push the fact that in a secular society, what are the limits of accommodation that should that should be honored by the rest of society? Should cabbies be able to refuse to allow people to bring alcohol into their car that pick up a random cab to carry them? Should 
services be imparted upon business people that reject those things based on Islamist beliefs. We can discuss each of them, and we may differ on many of these examples per se, but at the end of the day, if we go back to the case of this terrorist from the 93 bombing, I would tell you that his request for especially the dietary ones were unreasonable. His requests for an imam of his specific denomination are unreasonable. It's about reasonable accommodation, and that's an employment. In prison, accommodation that applies to all. It should be equal for all the criminals that are incarcerated. And that's all. The separatists, the Islamists, believe that they're better than others and they deserve special accommodation. They are intolerant of a more vague, general-type imam. He wants a specific Wahhabi imam or whatever type he wants. Their requests are endless. And unless you say no, the request will be endless. And that's what the judge, I think, was missing when he said, if this could have been fixed in 48 hours, why wasn't it fixed? Well, there's that fixed, then the next one, then the next one, then the next one. This is Zudi Jasser Reform. This will be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Your humble American Muslim correspondent here to talk to you about the battlefronts, the areas where the issues of Islamism and Western values conflict. I try to take them up with you week to week so that we can learn, we can talk together, we can have a conversation about where it is we can learn to find those areas that we can truly reform and begin to shape what the American Muslim identity should be, can be, versus the dominant one today, which is Islamist. What is Islamist? The Islamist identity is that we as Muslims have a, a complete melding of our religious and political identities. Make that three things. Religious political, and national identities. And that melding, thus, is the lens through which we look at the rest of society. And as we look at the rest of society through the lens of religious, political, and national identity of Islam, that's Islamism. So faith identity, Islam. Political identity, Islamist parties, like the Muslim Brotherhood, like AKP in Turkey, like the Khomeinists. National identity, the Islamic State. The flag has an Islamic inscription. The flag, the Constitution is about Islamic identity. That's what Islamists are. Until we Muslims can extricate our faith of Islam from those things that unite peoples, universal peoples together, in a nation-state, and in a political party. We are never going to understand nor be able to treat the disease of radical Islamism because we're not doing anything about nonviolent Islamism. I want to talk to you about separatism and immigration, but before we get there, I want to launch that discussion I want to launch that discussion on the conversation about a hurricane, about disasters. We see Hurricane Florence barreling into the Carolina coast this weekend. We don't know how bad it's going to be, what everybody's bracing for destruction. And typically, as a country prepares for an impending disaster in which they're talking about billions of dollars of destruction, possible loss of lives, and us coming together for food, water, shelter, safety, that's not supposed to know politics. That's not supposed to know party. That's not supposed to know division, faith, race, ethnicity. And I have to tell you, you know, when I served in the Navy, when we trained 
whether it was as I ran the medical department on the ship, the USS El Paso, supply officer, the commanding officer, the XO, deck, admin, on and on, each department, nobody knew what mattered, what faith, what race, what ethnicity was, what our, where our families came from. We were there together to keep each other safe and to protect our nation and to be mission ready for whatever mission would come down from the admirals, from the joint chiefs that we needed to execute. That's what America was. That's what made me an American is understanding that unity of purpose, that unity of idea that we together wanted to protect the flag, wanted to protect our constitution and believed in what it meant to be an American, what it meant to be an American. And as we prepared for this hurricane this week, I turn on the news and I'm hearing them already talk about the Trump administration lying about Puerto Rico funds, about the the misuse of, of monies that was supposed to go to prevent separation of families with ICE, but ended up going to FEMA and uh, uh, all of what they perceived as derogatory stories towards Trump were being done under the rubric of stories about preparation of a country for an impending disaster. I've never seen this. And I I saw a lot of people talking about it on social media that what is going on? Whether it was under Bush or under Obama, rarely did the media of either side going into major disasters think red or blue. It was about coming together. Afterwards, we can start criticizing the response. We can, and they certainly did it with Hugo. They did it with uh, um, Katrina, and they did it on and on. We can do that. That's normal American conversation, politics, and debate is how do you improve. But beforehand, as we prepare, we prepare blind to color, blind to party. But that seems to be changing with the obsession about Donald J. Trump. And I'm not even going to get into the politics about the rationale. It just doesn't make any sense. So I think back, what about these immigrants that are coming to this country, that come here, many of whom for freedom, but some for economics and some because they have another mission, actually. They're coming here to change us. How do you know which is which? So I want to change the conversation just if you can bear with me, about immigration. We look at immigration about somehow as a vetting mechanism. But I will tell you that the identity of a society is very hard to break. So, yes, the Islamists, separationists, separatists will come in and try their dangest, their damnest to change us to defeat us. But that really won't work. And at the end of the day, what's going to happen is who we are as a country, through our culture, through our society, will ultimately defeat them. We're seeing this now, and some of its, some of its response is very dysfunctional. You see some hypernationalism in Europe and other things. But at the end of the day, this clash of communities is sprouted and sometimes stimulated by groups that end up ghettoizing, that end up separating out. And you can argue chicken or egg where they forced to separate out because they were mistreated or did their ideas they brought with them naturally tend towards separating them out. I would tell you that with the Islamists, it naturally tends they want to separate out. They they believe Western freedom is hedonism. They believe secularism is godlessness. And they want to preserve their identity, which they view themselves, their Sharia interpretations as God. They view themselves as religious arbiters of a holy life. Now, Immigration. When people come from other cultures and they raise a family here, the kids begin to go to American schools. 
Some of them, the parents try to separate them out and tell them, oh, you need to go to private schools. Only Islamic schools are real schools. The American schools are just trash. They teach, they, they, they teach kids drugs and, and uh, sex, and they wear loose clothing and under, uh, underdressed for appropriateness, and they mix and date and drink and other things. So they tell them to go to private schools, but many don't. How is this acculturation? They, they see what their friends do. They, the kids taste of freedom. And they come home and the parents either respond with mature conversations. But again, that's sometimes not the culture in which they come from. I have a chapter in my book on tribalism. One of the, the biggest threats to Arab society is not only Islamism, but rather Arab pathological tribalism in the Middle East. A top-down approach, almost like a gang mentality that no matter what your tribe does, you stay with it. No matter how immoral, corrupt your family is, you stay with the family. It's a, it's a mafia-type mentality. Islam was supposed to correct a lot of that as a Judeo-Christian religion. And yet, we see that it has failed miserably in doing so. We can talk about the causes of that. But I think that if you look at the deeper process of immigration, as kids come back to home every night and they challenge their parents, they criticize them. Sometimes it's often dysfunctional and you may say it's not good, but at the end of the day, this society, like it or not, is based on critical thinking. Western society is based on individualism. So you see some touch points, be it honor killing, honor abuse, where the Iraqi father here in Phoenix drives over his daughter for dating, for drinking. The other, uh, other examples of Arab parents that kill their, their kids, uh, Pakistani Muslim parents that uh, decide to uh, um, or the, the head of Bridges TV that beheads his wife, supposedly moderate Islamic Bridges TV, beheads his wife rather than divorce her. Around 2006, I think that was. So the examples are, are just a large number of them, and those are the violent ones that I think are teaching examples of the reality of the pathology of the incompatibility of a mixture of the ideas of individualism, anti-tribalism, anti-theocracy, and pro-freedom that kids bring home with them. When we come back, let's talk about that identity. Is it truly incompatible, and what can we do about it? This is Udi Jasser on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Bill O'Reilly on the Glenn Beck Program. Bill O'Reilly is here now to tell us uh, how Donald Trump should handle the uh, Woodward book. Trump supporters, they don't care about the book. There's not one of them going to buy it, right? The people who hate Trump, they already know that they hate him. So a few people in D.C. will buy the book. It'll get some publicity. It's going to be a big book. It won't be a... I think it's going to sell out well in the long run. I don't think it's going to have legs. I really don't. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm usually not, as you know. (laughs) Bill O'Reilly on the Glenn Beck Program. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. We're just sitting back having a conversation. One of the things that comes up a lot in the Arabic community, in the Muslim community, is what do we do with the kids? How do we raise them in this culture? And there's so many um, psych- psychologists, analysts, family counselors, teachers who are writing and talking and speaking about the, the conflicts of raising, the challenges of raising children in an open culture in which the stresses of Facebook and social media, they have their head buried in the phone, how do you engage with them? All the natural pressures of raising children are here. And you add on top of it a generation gap in which the parents are from Syria, from Pakistan, 
from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, from Azerbaijan, from Bosnia, are from a culture that has an identity that, oh, we are Muslim. We are not like the Americans. We are Muslim. We are Syrian, not like the Americans. And when they say Americans, they're talking not the, against the freedom or liberty. They're talking against the gambling and alcohol and things that are negative of color freedom they associate with being American. And in comes the left that uses hyperpartisanship to criticize America. In comes Nike that uses the free market to give a platform to the $42 million Colin Kaepernick to use the flag, to use American unity to make a point. I disagree with that platform. I think he certainly has a right to speak out about his position on the treatment of blacks by the American police force. But I just believe that the venue that he chose should be free of anybody's politics, no matter what you believe. It's about football. But that digression that I just went through is not a digression because the Islamists that come from outside this country, the Arabists that come from outside this country will feed on that division and say, look, this is the evil that is America. They, they, they treat blacks the way Colin Kaepernick says it, and Nike agrees, one of the wealthiest companies in the world, that this is bad and America is a racist, bigoted country. So, if you're an immigrant family, I have kids, we're always challenged with how to communicate, how to, how to make sure that they understand how much you love them, how much you want them to be themselves, how much you want them to succeed, and yet no matter what they do, you want them to know that you'll still love them. And yet you want them to be challenged, you want them to be the best they can be, and you want them to f love God, to fear God, to to be religious, to, to love who they are, but to have, most importantly, their own identity that they embrace, not the ones that we think, but their own identity. That's a new concept for many immigrants. You leave a culture that's tribal, you leave a culture that is top-down, that often decisions of marriage, decisions of dating, decisions of professions are made for you or at least imposed in some ways upon you now again i think some of that's exaggerated by western media and western conversation there aren't as many arranged marriages of people that i knew from the middle east as some would have you think but again the the oppression of the culture and the limits of choices is far less than the choices that we have here And I think the importance of that isn't necessarily the number of the choices, but what happens to individual identity. Identity. So somehow my father and mother, when they got off the airplane and became American and, and got an address in Ohio and ultimately in Wisconsin where I grew up, they immediately felt intensely American. Part of it was my father's upbringing and going to school in London and in the West, understanding Western society, but also my mother's natural appreciation of freedom. Her family, her father had, had imposed no rules upon them other than to tell them, about the beauty of certain interpretations of Islam, but allowed them to choose whether to wear the hijab or not, insisted that they get graduate educations and pharmacology and medicine, whatever it might be, that that ultimately independence was connected to being educated for yourself. So I think those things made them appeal to Americanism and made them want to reject Baathism, the, the socialist fascism of the Assad regime in the 70s on. My parents left in the 60s. The Ba'ath took over in 63. But I think, again, autocracy is autocracy. It smothers individual identity no matter which way you look at it. 
And I think when you look at American identity, immigration will always fail and will create certain pathologies when they run up against these values. So yes, the terrorists, the militants may end up wanting to destroy us, but part of that is because of the defense of our culture. The American culture does not tolerate well people who are fanatical theocrats. Yes, there's examples that exist that are not Islamist, but at the end of the day, those are minorities versus the Islamists globally within the Muslim population that come here. That is a large movement. And as they start to try to acculturate here, they're going to fail. Some end up imploding. Omar Mateen joined ISIS. Nidal Hassan was so conflicted with his army identity, he ended up bonding with Awlaki, the greatest enemy of the United States, after bin Laden. The examples are rife with those that became the enemies of the United States, but there are many more milder examples that are not as dramatic, but kids who end up conflicted about what to do, end up depressed, end up torn between identities because they're home. At home, their parents say, let's go visit Karachi, our home. Let's go visit family in Damascus, in Cairo. Yeah, family, but where's your family's home? American. Are you American? We are American. We believe in the principles of America. We believe in the freedom and the liberty that is America. How many of them will say that? How many of them will believe it? Their parents will believe that and be able to articulate what Americanism is. I wrote a piece about why is it that so few Muslims proportionally have kids in the U.S. military? And that's a tough conversation. There are tens of thousands of American Muslims serving proudly in the U.S. military. I knew many of them. You go to the Bethesda Naval Hospital Chapel, you will see a crescent there next to the Jewish tablet and the cross that is part of the permanent emblem of that chapel. We helped have the first Islamic services in the 90s at Bethesda Naval Hospital. I was proud of who I was. I did translation for uh, um, Arab leaders that would come to Bethesda to get care. I believed in being proud of my faith. But I was always struck by how few Muslims, especially in the officers' corps and elsewhere, were in the U.S. military. And the numbers are there. There's an old number uh, stat from when I was in that said there were more Wiccans than there were Muslims. And some said, well, that's because there's a weird number of Wiccans. But bottom line is, is that it is far less than proportional to our number in the, in the U.S. population. I think that has to do with two major factors that I wrote about. One is the fact that the countries that we come from, the military, are evil entities. So to say that immigrants, when they come here, will realize that the American fighting force is the most moral on the planet, that does take some time. And I understand that. The Syrian military is a killing machine that is genocidal. The American military my parents loved from the moment they began raising me and taught me, and one of the reasons I joined the U.S. Navy and served for 11 years. But that takes time. So that's one reason. I think that would explain a little bit. But secondly is the separatism. The separatism. The fact that um, there is very little discussion about the importance of serving your country, preserving its constitution, preserving its liberty, preserving its freedom. There's very little discussion about wanting as a responsibility to being American, to serving in the U.S. military, to serving with the police, serving with the Department of Defense, with the government, with the society. That is what the Islamists want to prevent because once you start serving with your fellow Americans, you fall in love with who they are, with this country, and Islamism will die in the vein. The separatism will die. And that is what the separatists want to prevent. So they will hang on to whatever method they can to keep their kids out of embracing. And they're afraid. They're afraid they're going to lose their kids. They say they're afraid to drugs and other things, but they're afraid to 
losing them to other faiths. They're afraid that they'd have choice and make a choice to leave. But what they also should love is kids that grew up in a free society love their faith more truly and more strongly. I fight the fight that I do here because I chose all of the aspects of my faith. I knew I could choose them, and I chose them. And that's the only version of Islam I would have ever adopted. Had I grown up in Syria or Saudi Arabia, I don't think I would have understood Islam the way I do, and I may not, based on this personality that God gave me, have stayed a Muslim. But because I grew up in the land of freedom, I was able to create an interpretation an understanding intellectual by reading scholars that interpreted the faith in a way that made sense to me so parents need to ask their kids need to ask themselves do you want muslims that grow up understanding that they chose this stuff on their own and thus they become stronger believers stronger americans stronger patriots with no conflict or do you want to create robots or in this country conflicted individuals that become pathologically depressed separated out lonely and unable to find their own identities that is the struggle of immigration and we can talk about vetting people at the border we can talk about the 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 all the political constructs that weigh in on the separatism but at the end of the day this country will protect itself its culture will push back and create pathology in those who push back against it because they can't embrace the individuality of Western freedom, the individuality of Americanism. That's the way I see immigration. So the battle is going to meet out at some point. Whether we plan it today or tomorrow, it will be meted out in our kids and in our kids' kids. So I think we need to create institutions like American Islamic Forum for Democracy that's about separating mosque and state that teaches kids through liberty projects about why you should love the society. And I think that will ultimately decrease not only the terrorism and the radicalism, but decrease the conflict, the pathology that exists in those who can't acculturate, those who can't assimilate and understand what America is. Thank you as always for being with me. God bless y'all. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network.